Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. The Paper Trail, Nathan Smithson. The Count's full name was Francois-Louis Nompard de Comment Laporte, the Count de Castelnau. Remarkable to think that less than 60 years ago, men like him existed, hacking their intrepid way through jungles, risking their lives to understand more about the world and the plants, animals, and the people in it. Then there is Madame Fonseca, Carolina Trawal Fonseca, about whom little was ever written, or, if you will, written out of history. Her passport describes her as having a slim build, an oval face, dark hair, and eyes. She must have been a beauty. Throughout their lives, they kept diaries, the Count, most likely, because it was part of his scientific training to observe and record. Carolina, I fell into the habit of thinking of Madame Fonseca as Carolina, had to share her thoughts with someone. As a girl, she lived on a Brazilian plantation miles from anywhere. Even the journey to the nearest city, Bahia, could take over a day. There were no roads, only mule tracks. Her diary, I have come to believe, became her confidant and friend in a world often hostile to women like herself. Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Caroline Petit is the author of two novels, The Fat Man's Daughter and Deep Night. Today, I'm talking with Caroline about her new novel, The Natural History of Love. Caroline, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much, Gregory. There's so many interesting characters in this book, but Let's begin with Nathan Smithson, the narrator, a commentator, observer, always professional and objective as a man of the law ought to be, but somehow bemused at the same time the more he learns about the people and their lives. I think of him as the architecture for that book. Is that his role? Yes, that's very much his role because it's based on real people. I came to this book with like a discovery of evidence, and that's what I wanted to show in the book how I had found in the dusty legal files of the Count de Casanova and Carolina Fonseca and their sons, the story of their, of their lives in the affidavits and, and other kinds of letters and contracts. And I wanted him to have that kind of distance to be able to look at these characters objectively and decide how he's going to run his case. What I also found really wonderful about Nathan Smithson is his use of footnotes. I really wanted him to be able to explain the law because we're dealing in 19th century law where in France, at least, there was no divorce. The legal terms he uses needs to be understood. And then because he's reading and he found in the book these diaries written by both the Count de Casanova and Carolina. And so I let the translator tell Nathan also what some of these things that were going on in the book meant in Brazilian culture, in French culture, because Nathan is 28 years old in 1900, and he would have no concept really of the lives they led in colonial Brazil, or even in the salons of Paris in Napoleon III's time. It's also very useful because it saves the reader from having to Google every second word. <laughs> That's the plus too, because there was no Google. (laughs) 
I imagine it would be quite hard to sketch out the plot for this book, and I'm not sure that anything short of reading the book could actually do that justice. But without giving too much away, can you set the scene for the natural history of love? Yes. The book opens when Carolina is only 16 and she lives on this remote Brazilian sugar plantation. And she's a romantic girl who's also suffering from the loss of her father recently. And dumped onto the veranda of the plantation is the Count, who's delirious. Girls like Carolina were very well protected. She gets permission to be able to nurse him because she speaks French. She nurses him and Francois teaches her about natural history. And she, she's beguiling and in love with the idea of this exotic creature in her, her life. And she's very romantic. And they do fall in love. And then they go on to eventually on to when his diplomatic post, because he was both an explorer and or a naturalist and diplomat, um, his post comes to an end in Brazil after they've faked a marriage because they were discovered in bed together. And they go on to the salons of Paris and then they come to Melbourne where he is the consul, French consul to Australia. And the story is told through mainly through diaries, but letters as well. What does that allow you to do as an author? Gives you a different kind of way of doing a voice, I think. Because when I looked at those dusty legal files, there were also some letters in there. And so one of their sons, Charles, had a very difficult background because he was not allowed to think of the Count as his father and must always call him uncle. And that must have been very debilitating. So that the letters become self-serving and he's, because he's had such a really unhappy upbringing and lived under the guise that this man who he knows intuitively is his father, he only has to look in a mirror, is his uncle. And what that also means, how he regards his mother, Carolina. And if we can talk about the characters, which are a challenge to any podcaster or broadcaster, Carolina da Arrual Fonseca. She was a real person, as was Francois Louis Nompa de Comment Laporte. At what point do you leave reality behind and begin to create these people as characters? The early days on the plantation I invented because what I really wanted to do in my book was to give Carolina a voice. I found this story about the year 2000, though I didn't start writing it then. Um, when I visited their country house, Mayfield, which was about to be torn down for a concrete plant, everyone was talking about the Count's career and all the things that he had done. He'd explored South America, North America, wrote nearly 100 scientific papers and was a diplomat and had literally seen the world. But what I was intrigued by was Carolina. Here was a woman who even though there was a, a, a over 20 years difference in age, they'd stayed together because a, a, even in the role of mistress, which is a fairly perilous occupation, and had children by him, and, but there was not a word of her. And that's why I wanted to write this book because I think for too long, women have been left out of history. When the Count died and the age ran over the Argus then, the Argus ran a very long obituary of him. There wasn't a word about Carolina in the paper because male journalists thought that ladies would find their name in print repugnant. 
I don't know who they asked. But, and I do think she must have been a remarkable woman to deal with all of what she had to deal with. My prayers have been answered. He is awake. He is going to live. He has brown eyes, nice eyes, gentle and curious, he said. Bonjour, mademoiselle. Am I in heaven? My heart skipped a beat to hear such a pretty speech. I explained how we found him, how I nursed him, and didn't say a word about Pachulus Smakumba. Why should I? My devotion alone saved him from certain death. When I returned to the sick room with Mamey, she welcomed him to our home, inviting him to stay until his health is fully restored. He made an elegant speech. He owes his life to us, he said. Even in his fever, he knew I'd been his nurse. He was aware of my presence, faithfulness, and patience. Then I had this wonderful most wonderful experience. My sadness lifted my grief. It formed a soft, dark cloud above my head. Then a breeze ruffled the curtains and out it sailed through the window into the morning sky. Where the book begins, which is in Brazil with its black magic, witchcraft, Patulus is a slave nursemaid to Carolina uh, but also a candomblé priestess, and there's Mokumba magic. So there's all of this overlaid onto this man who's touring the world, trying to document uh, species in the name of science. I wanted to have that because especially the Portuguese colonists, they were an introduced species, if you will. And then they introduced a terrible form of slavery. And these slaves brought with them from their home countries this whole idea of how the universe was. And then you have this really heavy Catholic upbringing too. So it all overlays that. And I really was intrigued by that. And I read a lot of anthropological works on uh, people who have studied this religion and, and it's become almost the religion of, of, of parts of Brazil, especially the parts where Carolina was brought up. It's really, um, to this day, it's part of not only the black Brazilians, but white Brazilians too, and it's become incorporated in their culture. Darwin's theory of natural selection is so well argued. He has caused a revolution of thought. The major mechanism of evolutionary change is natural selection, a process that depends on the individual happening to accord with the needs of the environment and so surviving, and on minute random mutations that better fit the individual and his particular descendants for the world in which they live until the world changes and the advantage passes elsewhere. In other words, life is random. There is no central plan, no God-directed great plan. Everything is unplanned. Extinction can happen to a species. The future of a species cannot be predetermined. 
I'm not convinced of Darwin's godlessness. I fear men will cast off religious feelings and not see the almighty through the immensity and glory of his creations. The Count in real life had studied at the Sorbonne under the leading naturalist of his time. And he was really into the taxonomies of being able to try, try and tell you where things came from and, and identifying things. And then along came Darwin and revolutionized evolutionary theory. And, and the idea that in, in previous times that God existed to set the whole thing into motion. And if you read Darwin closely or not even so closely, you realize that God doesn't really have a role in evolution. <laughs> and so that that was almost like, was rather like climate deniers. <laughs> and, and so that they were dealing with these concepts and that's why there were so many, there was such agitation when Darwin published. I'm absolutely in awe of the breadth of historical and social detail in this book. This seems to be have been acquired through more than research. Is this perhaps an obsession? <laughs> As a writer, one becomes obsessed with doing justice to one's characters, especially if you know that they're, they were living people. And so I really became concerned that I would be able to present this worldview, and it is a worldview that I was trying to create, because I read diaries of people who had visited provinces of Brazil, what it was like to attend a salon in Paris, and, and also early days of Melbourne as well. Because when they came to Melbourne in 1861 or 62, Melbourne had only started in 1835 or so, and half of it was unbuilt, and there were canvas awnings next to these big buildings that, they were, that the gold rush was building. So it was all very new. Well, this book is an epic in all sorts of ways. We've just mentioned three different continents, South America, Europe, and now Australia. But I want to finish with this idea of fact and fiction coming together. Carolina says at one point, in reference to Balzac, I think, and perhaps it's true about this book, there is such truth in fiction. I'm a historical novelist. Where this one is of that genre. And I think what historical novelists can do is show you not just events, but what it feels like to be inside that world. And that's, that was my real obsession. I believe that, fic that fiction can, can take you to places that sh sheer facts cannot. Caroline Petit, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much, Gregory. I do appreciate your time. I've been talking to Caroline Petit about her new book, The Natural History of Love. It's published by Affirm Press. And you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.